0: Well, let's, let's go ahead and pray as we, as we turn to Luke chapter 10 here in just a moment. Let's, let's go ahead and pray as we, uh, as we get ready to read God's word together. Uh, Father, we, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for how you've uh, entrusted us with your word. And we pray that as we turn our hearts uh, to it, that you would cause us to, to grow in our relationship with you and give us a great passion for your truth. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen. We're going to do things a little out of order here. Why don't you go ahead and stand now with me as we read Luke chapter 10. And I'm going to read more than just verses 1 through 9. In fact, I'm not very confident we're going to be, get all the, be able to get all the way through verses 1 through 9 this morning. We'll see how God allows our time to progress. But let's do this. Let's uh, read verses 1 through 16 uh, together, beginning in verse 1. Luke chapter 10 says this, after this... The Lord appointed seventy-two others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest." Provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you. It will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. You may be seated and may you be encouraged through the reading of God's word this morning. In school, you learned that World War I ended in 1919 with the signing and ratification of the Treaty of Versailles. Some argue that World War I officially came to a completion just six months ago, six months ago today, in fact, on October 3rd, 2010. On October 3rd, 2010, Germany made its last reparations payment. Under the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was required to make certain payments back to those who had conquered it, and so on October 3rd, 2010, Germany made its final payment, thus officially bringing World War I to a close. I think we can all say we are glad to have that behind us, right? World War I came to a close officially on October 3, 2010, and, and many argue that the Treaty of Versailles was a very harsh treaty. The German economy was in shambles, and so the requirements placed upon Germany through the Treaty of Versailles were very, very strict, very hard on uh, the the time that the German chancellor was called upon to ratify the treaty. In fact, he called it a, a murderous plan. And instead of signing the Treaty of Versailles, he resigned in protest. He said, it's a murderous plan, and what hand, trying to put us in chains like these, would not wither? And in protest, he left the government. It's not unusual for a conquering army to place great demands on the people that it has conquered, is it? But what if the victor came to the vanquished and said, yes, there are reparations that you need to make, there are demands that we're placing upon you for peace, and yet we want this peace with you so badly we recognize that you do not have the means in and of yourselves to bring about these payments, to to make these payments, and so we are going to make these payments for you. We recognize your inability to bring about peace on these terms in and of yourselves, and so we are going to bear the cost for you so that peace can be established. The victor works with the vanquished to pay the reparations, thus bringing about peace. For those of you who are believers, you know that that is exactly what God has done for you and for me. For those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, have recognized that you are a sinner, that you're an enemy of God, and that you need to turn from your sins and turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ, you realize that that is exactly what God has done. He's recognized that you and I, on our own, are unable to do the things that are necessary to bring about peace between us and God. And so God has provided his son, Jesus Christ, for us so that peace can be achieved. His son, Jesus Christ, bearing the full penalty, 100% of the penalty of our sin. Bearing the wrath of God on himself so that you and I can have peace. And for those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, who have achieved peace with God, who have been reconciled to God, God has called you to proclaim that peace. You're to take that good news of Jesus Christ that the war is over, And God, who was our enemy, has brought about peace. And you can achieve that peace through faith in Jesus Christ. God has called those of us who are Christians to proclaim that peace. To proclaim that the war is over. Hostilities have ceased. And here are the terms. And here is the one who has met those terms perfectly in himself. However... If you're anything like me, you most likely have difficulty sometimes proclaiming that peace to others. God has called us to to take this good news, this greatest of all news, and share it with other people to evangelize. And if you're anything like me, and I suspect you are, sometimes you struggle with proclaiming that message of peace. And I think there's many reasons for this. For, for instance, perhaps sometimes, as you think about proclaiming this message of peace, you just are kind of at a loss of what exactly to say. I mean, this is a big book, and it's all about being reconciled to God. It's about the fall and, and then how God has provided for his people and, and worked with his people and established his son and established this kingdom. And, and so sometimes it's confusing in terms of exactly what do we say as we proclaim God's peace. What do we say as we proclaim the message of salvation. That's one struggle we might have. You know, last week we talked about how sometimes as people present the gospel, they use some words and some phrases that aren't necessarily in scripture, at least in terms of referring to the gospel. We talked about how people will say, uh, I want you to to bow your heads and and pray this prayer in order to become a Christian, and and praying a prayer isn't what makes a person a Christian, is it? I've mentioned before, one time I was called to to go and and visit a person who was on their, their deathbed. They had perhaps hours to live, and the family was concerned about this person's salvation. They said, this person has rejected God again and again. We want you to come and 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 pray the sinner's prayer with him so that he can be saved. I said, look, I can pray a prayer with someone from now until the moment they enter into eternity, but that's not what saves a person. If a person's heart is still rebelling against God and hasn't turned from their sin to faith in Jesus Christ— Simply reciting some words, it's not a magic formula. So one, t- one of the ways that I think we struggle sometimes in sharing the gospel is, is knowing exactly what it is that we're to articulate and how a person is to respond to this good news rightly. That's something that I think Christians struggle with sometimes. We also struggle when it comes to, to fear. We, we have fears. We, we think about talking to mom and dad about, this, about the gospel and, and how they're going to respond, or, or that coworker that seems so hostile to the things of God. The idea of having a spiritual conversation with that coworker who hates God fills, fills us with, with, with fear. Or the idea of losing the esteem of people as we share with them the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. And the idea of taking a message that seems foolish to other people intimidates us. I think another struggle that we have as we share the gospel is sometimes we're wrongly motivated. A person says, look, I've got this. I know I'm supposed to share the gospel. God tells me to share the gospel, so I'm going to go door to door, share the gospel. Oh, I hate this. Or it's, it's. I'm an evangelist. I have converted 15 people this month. And we're motivated by a sense of, of spiritual pride. What we're seeing in Luke chapter 10 verses one through nine this morning is we're seeing Jesus call these 72 disciples to to take the gospel of peace, to proclaim the kingdom to people, and they're to be motivated, they're to be compelled by compassion, by this desire to see other people harvested and enter into God's kingdom. And then we're going to see as Jesus calls them to be compelled by compassion, we're going to see some principles for proclaiming God's kingdom as we look at Luke chapter 10 verses 1 through 9. And go ahead and turn there with me if you're not already there. And we're first going to look at being compelled by compassion in verses 1 through 2. And I'm not sure how far we're going to get beyond into the principles, but we're going to give it a good shot this morning and see how God blesses our time together. But uh, let's start off in verses 1 and the first part of verse 2 as we look at the idea of being compelled by compassion as we see Jesus's instructions for proclaiming God's peace in his coming kingdom. begins in verse 1. says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, maybe you're reading that and saying, Daniel, um, this... This seem, are, you, are, we, are you repeating a message? Didn't we just cover this? Uh, is your calendar off? No, uh, if you look back at Luke chapter 9, the beginning of Luke chapter 9, we see another situation where Jesus appoints his disciples to go out. There's some similarities between that passage and, and this one, but there's also some differences. One of the differences is that in Luke chapter 9, he was sending out his 12 disciples. Now he's sending out a, a broader group, a group of 72 And as he sends out these 72, he gives them some instructions as well, some of them very similar to what he told his disciples, some slightly different. As he sends out these 72, he's sending them out two by two, so 36 groups of two, and these disciples are to go with one another, and they're to go into these regions in which Jesus is going to be traveling, and they're to go into these regions and prepare people to receive Jesus and hear his message. I would assume that they're going to say some of the same things that we've seen Jesus say earlier about the kingdom of God. They're going to say, look, you need to understand the kingdom of God is on its way. It's something that you're going to want to participate in, and you need to repent. You need to turn from your sins, and you need to believe in Jesus. And obviously, they don't understand the full impact of Jesus' message, but they're calling people to understand the reality of the sins in which they currently are existing and to recognize that Jesus offers a better way and that God's kingdom is coming through Jesus. They don't understand the full gospel yet, but that's the message they're to call people to understand and receive. And as Jesus calls his disciples to go into these communities, into these towns, into these places, and talk about himself, what does he say is to compel them? What is it that's supposed to drive them as they engage in this ministry? It's what we see him say at the beginning of verse 2. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What does that mean? What does the imagery of, of harvest mean there? I want to talk about that for a moment because it's very important in helping us understand what Jesus is using to motivate people here. Joel chapter 3 talks about harvest. And, and oftentimes in harvest in, in scripture, when the term harvest is used, it's used to refer to, to the end times and, and God's final judgment upon all people. For example, Joel chapter 3, verse 13. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm start in verse 12. Joel chapter 3, verse 12 says, Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. You say, well, that doesn't sound very good. No, it doesn't. He goes on and he says, Go in, tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. Here in Joel, harvest refers to this day of judgment of God, and the sickle comes upon the earth, and people are taken away into judgment. Harvest is not a positive image in Joel. We see this in Revelation as well, Revelation 14. John says, then I looked and behold, this is Revelation 14, 14, and 15. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap. For the hour has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Again, he's talking here about a harvest of judgment. He goes on, verse 16, So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Another angel came out from the altar. The angel has the authority over the fire. And he called out with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And so understand this: harvest, sometimes in Scripture, indicates the end of the age, and it's a harvest to judgment. There are some harvests in the future that you do not want to be a part of. Humanity is carried away because of its continued rebellion against God into judgment. But Jesus also uses harvest in positive terms, but still with the idea of of judgment in the future. For example, for example, John chapter 4. Verse 35, Jesus says, Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I-, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for, listen to this, for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. That's John chapter 4, verses 35 and 36. So there's this end of the age, and, and some are going to be harvested into judgment, and others are going to be harvested into eternal life. And what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 10 here is he's carrying with us this, this idea of future judgment, and he's saying the harvest is plentiful. The need is great. There are, is a mass of humanity out there that's in danger of entering into eternity without God. The harvest, the opportunity, is great. There are multitudes upon multitudes upon multitudes who need laborers working among them to bring them out of God's wrath, into relationship with God, into God's kingdom. There's a problem, isn't there? And what's the problem? Even though the need is great, even though the multitudes are profound, the need is great because the laborers are few. You see that? Need big, laborers small. Does that motivate you? Do you find Jesus' words here compelling? Compelling. Do you look at Jesus' words here in Luke chapter 10 and say, wow, uh, great needs, small laborers, that means I really need to be motivated to care for the lost. I'll tell you this, that statement, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, should motivate the true believer. It motivates Paul. In Romans chapter 9, Paul is is wrestling with the fact that not all Israel has believed Jesus Christ. In fact, in Romans chapter 9, listen to Paul's words as he talks about those who have rejected Christ. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And then he goes on and he says in verse 1 of chapter 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul thinks about his kinsmen in the flesh. He thinks about his fellow Israelites. And he thinks about this moment in time in which he exists where the Messiah has just come. And instead of these people who have been entrusted with God's law and should have been the people who responded rightly to the Messiah, they've rejected him. And as he thinks about that reality, there is unceasing anguish and sorrow in his heart. He thinks about the reality of God's purpose for these people's lives from a human perspective not being fulfilled. And as he thinks about the faces of people who've rejected the Messiah, there is sorrow in his heart. And it compels Paul to engage in ceaseless gospel proclamation ministry. And so, my question for you is as you read Jesus' words in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, does it compel you to compassionate gospel ministry? As you think about the reality that there are people in your life who are entering into eternity without Christ, does it compel you to have compassion for them and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to them so that they can be harvested and engage in worship of God? If it doesn't compel you, there's something wrong with you spiritually. Because Jesus' assumption is that that phrase, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, is a compelling argument to evangelism and proclaiming the gospel of peace. I read an article this past week, uh, Al Mohler mentioned it in his blog, uh, it was in the Wall Street Journal, It's called, Why Chinese Mothers Are Superior. Anyone have, any of you read that? It's about, it's written by a woman named Amy Chow, she's written a book in which she refers to herself as a, as a tiger mother. And she's talking about the differences between Western American mothers and, and Chinese immigrant mothers. She says in a poll, a study between comparing immigrant Chinese immigrant mothers and, and Western American mothers, she says uh, Western mothers, seventy percent of Western mothers said either that stressing academic success is not good for their children, it will hurt their self-esteem, or that parents, quote, need to foster the idea that learning is fun. And Amy says approximately 0% of Chinese immigrant mothers felt the same way. Instead, the vast majority of the Chinese mothers said that they believe that their children can be the, the best, that academic achievement reflects successful parenting. That if children did not excel at school, there was a problem, and parents were not doing their job. And then she talks about in this Wall Street article, Wall Street Journal article, very interesting, the cultural differences here. She talks about things that she's done to motivate her children. She says that one time her child gave her a birthday card, and she looked at the birthday card and she threw it back at her kid. <laughs> Said, This isn't a very nice birthday card. And she talks about all these different things she did to motivate her children to be successful. And the children, these two daughters that she has, have turned out, from a human perspective, if, if you're gauging success by academic achievement, they've turned out very successful. My point is not to commend a certain mothering style to you. My point is that a person can motivate another human being to do some rather remarkable things, depending upon what their goal is. Now, if this morning you say, you know what, I'm I'm motivated by the esteem that other people have for me. I'm motivated by saving face. I'm motivated by popularity at school. I'm motivated by my neighbors not thinking I'm some weirdo. I'm motivated by other people looking at me and, and, and feeling like I, I fit in. If that's what motivates you, Jesus' words here will not be very compelling. But if you say, I'm motivated by a desire to see God worshiped. God's glory is a big deal to me in fact God's glory is an all-consuming passion for me then you'll find Jesus's words here in Luke chapter 10 verse 2 very compelling the harvest is plentiful there's an amazing opportunity to have a lot of people engage in worship of God uh, the labors are few I'm going to get out there I want to be a proclaimer of God's kingdom I want to be a proclaimer of God's peace if that's your passion, you're going to find Jesus' words here extremely compelling. We're compelled by compassion because we have a desire to see those who do not worship God worship him. That's the point here as we look at verses one and two. And ask yourself, I'd encourage you, as you think about application of this, ask, myself, ask yourself, am I compelled to by compassion. As I think about my family members who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and I think about my interactions with them, am I more motivated by a desire to not cause waves, or am I more motivated by a desire to see God worshiped? As I think about my, my co-workers who who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, am I more motivated by a desire to, to rise up the company ladder or am I compelled by a desire to? Proclaim Jesus Christ to these people who who I love or I want to love. So Think about my friends at school. Do I have a real desire to see my friends at school know the good news of Jesus Christ? Does that compel me? If it does, here are some principles for harvest ministry. Here are some principles for the harvest that Jesus gives us. The last part of verse 2 through verse 9. Let's look at these now. Principles for the harvest. Principles for the harvest. The first principle is this. The first principle is pray for God's grace. Pray for God's grace. He says the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus is telling them, look, if if this motivates you, if it compels you, the fact that there are people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, then pray earnestly. That phrase, pray earnestly, comes from a a Greek word that means to to beg, to beseech. It's a person who has nothing, crying out earnestly for the provision of someone who has the resources they need. He says, pray earnestly, beg, beseech, implore. Who? Who? the Lord of the harvest. As a person beseeches the Lord of the harvest, they're recognizing that, that the Lord of the harvest is sovereign over the harvest. He decides what will be harvested. He decides where to harvest. He decides how long the harvest will take and when to accomplish it. Pray earnestly, beseech, beg, implore the Lord of the harvest, the one who's sovereign over it, for what? For laborers. Pray that he would send out laborers into his harvest, beseech, beg him to direct his harvest and provide people for it. Now, here's the big question, right, as we think about prayer and evangelism. Why? Why does God ask us to pray for people to be saved? Why does God ask us to, to pray that people would be directed to the harvest? I mean, isn't God sovereign? And if God is sovereign, doesn't he already know who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved? And, and does it really even matter if we decide to pray or not? If God is sovereign, why does he want us to pray? What is, is prayer kind of like, like a rubber stamp? God, I, I know you're already going to do this or not going to do this, but here I go. I pray for my friend to be saved. There, I did it. Now do it. Is prayer just kind of a joke? No, no, no. Let me give you some biblical principles for prayer that I think will help us rightly understand, because I think we think wrongly about prayer in some very profound ways. The first thing that I think we need to understand for a biblical understanding of prayer is this. Firstly, prayer reflects the truth that God is sovereign. As you and I pray, we're rightly recognizing that that God is the one who's the Lord of the harvest. And so an attitude of prayer rightly communicates to God, we recognize that you're sovereign over the harvest. Secondly, secondly, prayer truly changes what happens in our lives. Do you believe that? Even though God is sovereign, yes, prayer, listen to this again, truly changes what happens in your life and the lives of other people. Prayer truly changes what happens. Let me give you some verses to show this. First of all, Matthew 21, 22. In Matthew 21, 22, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. In other words, here's two eventualities, two possibilities. Possibility A, no prayer, this happens. Possibility B, you pray, this happens. What affects what happens? Your prayer. Praying in faith and with belief according to god's will and his plan for your life prayer affects which of these two things happens in your life prayer is effective mark 11:24 jesus says therefore i tell you whatever you ask in prayer believe you have received it, and it will be yours. And he says, is this some sort of magic formula I can pray? No, the person who prays in Jesus' name is praying according to God's will, and but there are two possibilities. This happens, this happens, I pray, and this happens. It affects what takes place in my life. Another passage for you to look at, Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7 is very interesting. In fact, uh, let me just read it to you. Verse 1 It says, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. So in other words, and and he says, uh, when they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, and he's going to respond here for a second, but these locusts, God shows Amos, are about to devour the land at a very crucial time in the harvest. Amos sees this. God says, this is what's going to happen Amos sees this, and he said, Lord God, this is verse 2 of Amos 7, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Verse 3, the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Now you see, well, God's sovereign. God could do whatever he wants, and God has planned from eternity past what judgment is going to happen, what judgment won't happen. Yeah, but Amos prayed. God said, here's what's going to happen. Amos says, well, God, please forgive. And so something else happens. Did God know from before eternity what he would do? Yes, of course, God is sovereign. But did Amos's prayer affect how God acted? Scripture tells us yes. Yes. You say, well, that's one example. Well, the next verse says this. Verse 4, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, Oh Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Verse 6, the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord. What affected how God acted? Amos's prayer. Is God sovereign? Yes, absolutely. But, and, part of God's sovereign plan includes not just what he's going to do, but how he's going to do it. And God in his sovereignty has said, prayers are going to affect how he acts. Do you believe that? You believe it in other areas of your life. Why not prayer? For example, your parenting. Do you say, well, I've got these kids... But God is sovereign, so what point does disciplining really make in their lives? God's sovereign, they're going to turn out the way that they're going to turn out. Is God sovereign? Yes. Is God going to be ultimately responsible for how your kids turn out? Yes. But does God call you to do real things that affect how your children behave? Yes. Or think about about what you eat. You don't say, God is sovereign. I'm going to be the size I am no matter what I do, right? So, It doesn't matter what I eat, it doesn't matter if I exercise or not, or has God in his sovereignty said, look, I know what is going to happen in your life, I've I've planned it, but I I will not just what happens, but how it happens, And, and your decisions, what you do have real impact on what's going on in your life. So it is with prayer. Prayer is crucial for the salvation of the people that are in your lives. And if you're going to see people come into relationship with God, it requires you to pray for them. George Mueller famously decided to pray for five of his friends. He prayed for them every day, and after several months, one of the five friends came and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. He continued to pray for the other four friends ten years later. Two more of them placed their faith in Jesus Christ. He continued to pray, and after 25 years, the fourth man was converted and placed his faith in Jesus Christ. Mueller continued to pray. He prayed for that last man to place his faith in Jesus Christ for 52 years, and then Mueller died. And Several months after his funeral, the fifth man placed his faith in Jesus Christ. It's a famous story, and I believe there aren't more stories like that as I was thinking about that story, because so few of us exercise that level of faithfulness in prayer. Are you compelled by compassion? Do you have a desire to see those around you place their faith in Jesus Christ? If so, the first principle for proclaiming the harvest, for proclaiming God's peace, is to pray for God's Grace, to pray that God's grace will be exercised in the lives of those you desire to see place their faith in Jesus Christ. I encourage you to think through specifically. In fact, maybe even right now, you can just jot down a couple notes. Who you are your the men or women or, or fellow students or kids in your class that you wonder about the state of their soul, take a moment and just jot down a couple names. Maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a family member. Jot down a name or two of of someone that that God might be calling you to proclaim his gospel to and to pray for them, to pray for them on a daily basis. So the first principle of the harvest is to pray, and we're going to get through the second principle here, and and then I believe we're going to save the rest of them for next week. The second principle is found in verse 3. It's go into enemy territory. Go into enemy territory. Verse 3, Jesus says, go your way. In other words, don't just stay here. Don't just stay here talking to the other disciples about me or kind of creating this holy huddle here. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lamb in the midst of wolves. Jesus knowingly tells these disciples to go into locations where there's going to be hostility to this kingdom message. It's shocking, isn't it? Jesus knowingly sends these disciples into locations where there are people who, do, who are not excited about this gospel message of peace. Once upon a time... There was a little lamb, little sheep. And this sheep decided to go and live among wolves. The sheep, as she lived among these wolves, was aghast at their behavior. These wolves refused to wear the same type of clothes that this sheep wore, they refused to wear sheep's clothing. Uh, these wolves behaved very hostile. They didn't think the same way that she thought. They didn't have sheep thoughts like she had. And in fact, these wolves had the incredible, incredibly annoying tendency to want to consume her. It was shocking their behavior. In fact, these wolves, these wolves were completely different completely hostile toward her. And so she began to make demands. She, she wanted the, the wolves to begin to act like sheep. She wanted them to dress like she did. She wanted these wolves to uh, think like she did. She wanted these wolves to listen to sheep music. And she wanted the wolves to celebrate sheep holidays and to say things like Merry Sheep Day to her. And when they didn't, she sued them. The point is this. God knowingly sends us into territory that's hostile to the gospel. Go there. Don't stay in our little, little cloistered life. Be engaged with those that are hostile to the gospel message. Love them. And don't be shocked when they don't like you very much. We don't like each other sometimes, right? Don't be shocked when wolves act like wolves. God wants you to go in that enemy territory not in order to put wolves in sheep's clothing and have them kind of look like sheep. God wants you to go into enemy territory because you're compelled by compassion and you want wolves to turn into sheep so that they can engage in worship of God. The compelling course here is one of, of compassion and a desire for worship. John, chapter seventeen. Jesus explains this reality to us. He says, in verse eleven, he's praying his high priest high priestly prayer, and he says, "I'm no longer in the world, but but he's saying this he's saying this about his disciples, but they are in the world and." I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction. He's referring there, of course, to Judas. Verse 14, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I, listen to this, Do you believe Jesus' words there? Do you believe that Jesus has sent us into the world? Or has he just sent us into the church? He has created the church so that worship of God could exist within this community of faith. And that he has called us to have compassion on those who are not engaged in worship of him. And to proclaim his Peace in his kingdom to them. And the first two principles of the harvest that we see this morning, firstly, pray for God's grace. Pray for those in your life who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ to come into relationship with him. And secondly, go there. Armed with prayer, go into the enemy territory. Engage in relationships with people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that between this week and if the Lord allows us to return next week, next week, as we continue looking at principles for God's harvest and how he's calling us to reach the lost with compassion. Let's pray. And Father, we, we thank you for your word and we thank you for its, its goodness and its, its truth, and we, we pray that you would guide us in all truth, sanctify us in your truth, Give us great compassion and love for others. And we pray all this in your son Jesus' name, amen.